0: bless the preaching of your word. We come now to open it, and I pray that you would have your way with us by means of your word preached. Give us ears to hear it. Guard the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts as we come before your word now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We are continuing to work through the book of Malachi, uh, and one thing I wanted to take just a moment to mention is, you may have noticed that uh, both my dad and I, as we're preaching these weeks leading up to Christmas, we've, not, we've decided not to take a particular, se- and do a particular series or set of sermons on Advent leading up to Christmas, but what is fascinating is, as he's been preaching through John, it can't but be Advent sermons. I don't know if you've noticed that. It comes right back to the simple gospel message. And even as we're going through Malachi, the same thing is true. There is simple gospel here, simple walking like Christians, following Christ. And that's through every, on every page of the Bible we see this. And so although we're not taking time away to do a particular Advent series, these are still Advent sermons. These are still sermons that remind us of the coming of Christ, why he came, what he came to accomplish, and what we are to do about it. So as we go through Malachi, we have noted uh, time and time again that the, the book of Malachi can be seen as structured as a chiasm. And a chiasm is simply a literary device that uh, uses parallel sections to work towards a middle section. Uh, and, and one of the reasons for identifying this kind of literary structure in a book or in a passage is to see what is, what is at least one thing that the author is drawing our attention to. That center point, that center of the chiasm is often a particular point that the author wants to, to get your attention with. And so as we um, have... Uh, if you you probably don't remember, so I'm not going to ask you to remember, but very long time ago when we did the first message on Malachi, I laid out a, a general structure for the whole book. The whole book can be seen as a chiasm, and we come now to the, the B prime section. So if a chiasm has uh, parallel A sections, and then parallel B sections, and parallel C sections, and then a center D section, and the letters might be more or less than that, but you have parallel sections. So right now, as we come to this next section in Malachi, we are in the second B section. So we're nearing the end of the book. We're coming out away from the center to this next, to this second to last section. And this section is actually—I'm only going to be preaching on the first half of this. What I see as the this B prime section. The whole section runs from the second half of verse seven all the way through the end of chapter three, so to verse eighteen. And this uh, whole section provides a contrast with the parallel section in chapter 1. So if you flip back just a page or so and scan for a moment chapter 1, verses 6 through the beginning of chapter 2, and you'll see as you scan through that, here the Lord is accusing the priests over and over again of their disobedience in the way in which they are bringing their offerings to God. They're bringing offerings to God that are defiled. They're bringing offerings to God that are unfit to lay upon the altar. And then as they do so, they look at the altar and they say, wow, those offerings are really terrible. And they're despising God's altar. They're despising it. They lift lift up their noses to it. This is what God is accusing the priests of doing over and over again. One way of seeing this that we've mentioned before is that this is a way in which the priests were seeking to bribe God. When we bring unfit offerings to God, what are we doing? We're acting like somebody who's trying to bribe God. Now, how do we make sense of that? Well, um, if we wanted to obey God and follow him, then we would bring the sacrifices that he requires. We would bring, if we're in, living in the Old Testament period, we would bring uh, the, the, an unblemished lamb to the altar. But if I'm trying to... Um, Uh, manipulate God or get away with things, I'm going to bring a a lamb that is blemished, that is sick, that is hurt in some way, and thinking that I can sort of obey God, sort of um, fulfill what he has asked me to do, and get him, get what I want out of God, but I'm going to do it at the cheapest way possible. I'm not going to bring the best. I'll bring something that'll get God's attention and maybe get what I want out of God, but uh, somebody who is also wheeling and dealing bribes is always looking for the cheapest option. So the priests here are bribing God, they're seeking to manipulate God by means of these foul offerings. This is contrasted then with this uh, second to last section in chapter 3. Here, in chapter 3, the Lord invites all the people to test his promises. He invites them to test his promises by means of their obedience with tithes and offerings. So previously, God said, you, you are bribing me, you're seeking to manipulate me by bringing these foul offerings, and you are cursed, he says to the priests. And now he's inviting all of the people to bring their offerings rightly to him, and in doing so, to test God, and to see whether or not he will keep his promises. This is, in many ways, a shocking invitation that God gives in this passage. Instead of bribing God with as little as possible, God is teaching his people to test his promises by simply walking in obedience. That, that's the theme of this sermon. God calls his people to test him by walking in obedience. So let's look at these. Uh, I, I want to spend a, just a few minutes looking a little bit more at these structures, these chiastic structures. Um, and one other note about these things uh, why, why do I spend time talking about chiasms and this particular structure in this book? It might seem dry and academic, and, and what's really the point? Um, if, you don't underst- if you don't see the chiasms here, or you, or you look at what I'm trying to show you, and you say, I don't get it, that's okay. Um, it's not something that is required to, to see or to, um, uh, to really understand in order to understand God's word. It's, it's, not, it's not a requirement by any means. It is one thing, I think, that as we study God's word, as we grow in our love for God's word, um, it's it's one of those layers of the richness of God's word. It's something to enjoy, help us grow in our appreciation and love of God's word. It's by no means, again, a requirement to see this or, um, or to study it in this way. But I think it is something that helps us see the depth and beauty of God's word. It's all written on purpose. It's all laid out for us to... To point us to particular things. And so if it's, a, if it's helpful to you and a blessing to you as we go through it this way, uh, then, then glory to God. And if not, I think the message that comes from it, uh, that I see from these, this structure, is still good for you and I think will still bless you. So let's look at these for uh, a moment here. In this, uh, the entire B section, which would be um, the second half of chapter 3, verse 7 through the end of the chapter... Uh, parallels again with this, uh, the beginning B section, verse, chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2, verse 2. If you follow along with me in chapter 3, 7, I'll point out to you these parallels. If you look at the second half, or sorry, uh, chapter 3. If you look at the second half of verse 7, we, we could summarize this by saying, God calls the sons of Jacob to return to him. He's addressed them as the sons of Jacob just earlier, and now he is calling them to return to him. This parallels then with verse 18 where God says that they will return and discern between the righteous and the wicked. Uh, I intend to preach on the second half of this section later, so we'll get into more of the detail there. But one of the things that's wonderful to see here is you've got God calling his people to return. And then in verse 18, it says that they will return. If you're looking at the New King James, it says, um, then you shall again discern. Um, But there's a translation, uh, different ways to translate this. The word that here is used to, tr- to translate again is actually the same word for return. You could, you could just as well, and the King James translates it this way as well. You shall return and discern between good and evil, between ri- the righteous and the wicked. So God says, return to me. And then at the end of this passage, he says, they will return. This is, God's, this is what God is saying is going to happen. Then we go into the B sections, uh, verses 8 and 9. The Lord says that those who rob God are cursed. If you rob God, you are cursed. He tells um, the priests and the people that you are cursed with the curse because you have robbed me of tithes and offerings. Then the B prime section, verses 16 and 17, is God's uh, statement that he, and, and description of how he will be merciful and gracious to those who fear him. So they are cursed, but God is going to be merciful and gracious to those who return to him, to those who fear him. Then we get to the C sections in three, chapter 3, verse 10. God calls the people to test him with their obedience. And then C prime, uh, the people are responding to all of this, and they say that the wicked test God and go free. The people are seeing this inconsistency, or what they think is an inconsistency in, in God's commandments. God, the wicked are testing you, and they get away with it. Why, why are you bringing all this judgment upon us? The wicked are testing you, and they get away with it. What's your deal with us? Okay, and then we get to the D sections. In verse 11, God will defend them and bless them with fruit. He will uh, cause their their, their fields and their vines to produce much fruit. This great blessing upon them. And then D prime, uh, the people say that it is useless and fruitless to obey God. God says, if you return to me, if you you return to me, if you bring in the tithes, I will bless you. Uh, Your land will be fruitful. And the people respond by saying, it's fruitless to obey God. It's sort of this idea of, well, I tried that and it didn't work, God. And then right in the center here then of this whole section, we have verse 12. This is where God says, all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. And so at the center of this section, remember, keep in mind, God has been um, railing against the priests, railing against um, Israel because, or the Jews because of their defiled offerings, because of their injustice with the law, because of their, uh, the way that they have turned in idolatry to other gods and in the way in which they have, that, that has led them to divorce in their own homes. He has been railing, railing, railing against them through the whole book of Malachi. And then here in the middle of this section, God says, all nations will call you blessed. This is, a, this is a great turn in the book of Malachi. Okay, now one more structural thing I want to look with you at, and that is in the more particular text that we are that I'm going to be preaching through. So if you look at chapter 7, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 7 through verse 12, which is the passage I read, this too, I think, can be seen as another chiasm, okay? There's, a, there's another sort of progression here of thought that we can see. So this is in your note. You could, I encourage you to look at this in the text and or in the notes that you have in front of you. So again, verse 7, second half of verse 7, God says, return to me. And the, that is parallel to the causal outcome or the sort of a logical or causal argument here. The causal outcome is verse 12, you will be a delightful land. Return to me, You will be a delightful land. And then uh, in verses eight and nine, God says, you have robbed me in tithes and offerings and because of this, you are cursed. And then that parallels with how God, the causal uh, um, or the the result of them turning back to him, I will stop the devourer. I will reverse the curse and I will bring the harvest, verse 11. And then in this, so then in the center of this section, if we're seeing this as a causal argument, God says, return to me, You have robbed me in tithes and offerings, and so you're cursed. Therefore, see, the center of this chiasm, verse 10, bring your tithes. Bring the tithes into the the storehouse. Test me to see if I do not flood you with blessings. Okay, so do you see the, the logical argument here? Return to me. You have robbed me, and so you're cursed. So bring the tithes into the storehouse. Test me to see if I don't flood you with blessings. And and what will be the result of that? I will stop the devourer. Your land will be fruitful. And therefore, because of that, all nations will call you blessed. And it all hinges on that center point. Bring the tithes into the storehouse. Test me in this. So what I'd like to do for um, the rest of the sermon time here is look at these sections or these parallels um, and work through them together. So remember that Malachi is writing during the time after the exile, after the return from exile, and after the rebuilding of the temple. Um, there's disagreement among scholars and commentaries as to exactly when Malachi lived, exactly who Malachi was, and when he's writing. Um, but uh, So there's some disagreement about whether or not he was a contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah as they're coming back from uh, Babylon. Babylon. Um, Or if he maybe came sometime after. Some would maybe say 70 or even 100 years later. It's it's debatable. But either way, whether he was a contemporary of uh, the rebuilding of the temple or if he comes later, um, Malachi's statement here from the Lord in verse 7 would have been surprising to the Jews. Think about this for a moment. Uh, God is saying through his prophet Malachi to the Jews, Return to me. And in the Jewish history, what has just happened? They've come back from exile. They've come back to the temple. They've rebuilt the temple. We have returned. And God, so, that, so they've come back and God's saying, return to me. It's like you're walking into your front door and your spouse says, come inside. I just did. You can see how the Jews might be perplexed by this. God says, return to me, though they have just returned and rebuilt the temple. This is because God makes very clear throughout all of this book of Malachi that coming back to the temple without coming with clean hands and clean hearts is no real return. Coming back to the Lord with unclean hands, with unclean hearts, is not actually coming back to him. You do not return to the Lord with hypocritical and half-hearted worship and repentance. It doesn't work that way. You can't repent halfway. That's not repentance. You can't turn back to the Lord half-heartedly because that's not actually turning back to him. And this is what the people had been doing in their worship, in their sacrifices. As creator and redeemer, God deserves and demands our whole selves. Sometimes we can think that God um, demands a lot of us. But we forget that, it's, that the reason that he demands a lot from us, part of the reason, is because he deserves it. It's not something where God is this capricious God who's just um, grabbing for glory. It's actually something that is owed to him. And that's because he is the creator and we are not. He's created all things and we are his creatures. And therefore, he deserves all of our honor, all of our glory, our whole selves, our whole being. God says this to his people, and then Jesus identifies this as the first and greatest commandment when he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. God demands your whole person, your whole mind, your whole strength, all of you, from from the time you wake up in the morning till the time you wake up the next morning. Right? He requires all of you all the time, and this is what he deserves. Now, Understanding this, that that God is calling them to return to him because he deserves all of them, their their whole person, this again matches with God's promise that having returned to to him in obedience, they will be called blessed by all nations because they will be a delightful land. And this is really, um, this is important to understand in terms of God's economy. We'll, We'll talk about this, we'll see this a couple different times in this passage. This is how God works. Whereas God had declared that he had no pleasure in them, back in chapter one, he says to them, uh, you you bring, uh, I am am the father and my name is not honored. I am to be honored in all the nations and yet you bring these foul sacrifices to me. And so God says a, a very hard word to Israel. I have no pleasure in you. I have no pleasure in you. That's what God says at the beginning of Malachi. And yet now here, God says that, although he had said that previously, their return to God, because he deserves all glory and honor, ends with them being called pleasant. It's the same word there. When God says, I have no pleasure in you, that's, that's related to the same word that is used when God says, you will be a delightful land. There's a contrast going on here. God says, I have no pleasure in you because you're walking away from me. I have no pleasure in you because you are not turning to me. And then he says here, return to me, and when you do so, you will be a delightful land. And this is, this is what I mean in terms of understanding God's the way that God works, God's economy. When we turn to God, we, we ought to do so because he is God. Because that's what he deserves. But in doing so, God's glory and his honor, and the glory and the honor that we give to God returns upon us, right? God says of the Jews, I don't like you. I have no pleasure in you. You stink. Remember in chapter two, God says that he's, he despises them so much that he's gonna rub the dung of their sacrifices on their faces and cast them out of the city. That's how much God likes the Jews. That's how much Malachi, that, that because of their sin, that's what God's saying to this people, And yet here he's saying, no, but return to me, give me glory that is due to my name, and you will be blessed. You'll be called delightful. I I will have pleasure in you. This is God's economy. God demands our honor, and the fruit of that, of our giving honor to God, is we are honored. God demands our honor, and the result of that is that we, in turn, are honored. And so this helps us understand, I think, a little bit more, why does God, you, you can read through the, through the scriptures and think God is really self-centered. God is really into his own glory. And if you're reading the scriptures and that's the impression that you're getting, that's good, because he is. But it's not a, it's, it's a self, it's a, um, he's concerned with his own glory because he delights to let it spill out onto others. You don't deserve the kind of glory that God deserves because you're not God. It would be unfitting for you to have the kind of glory that God gets. And yet, he delights in returning some of that glory back onto you as it is brought to him. Let's move on to the the B sections here. So this is looking at verses 8 and 9, paralleled with verse 11. God accuses the people of robbing him by not bringing in their tithes and their offerings. Um, so the tithe, which would be, uh, is the, the tithe is a tenth of the increase. And this was something that is required in God's law. Um, God required his people to bring in a tithe. Um, and at a minimum, it was a tenth of their increase. So at harvest time, when they bring all the, all the crops in, they would set aside their first fruits, the first tenth, would be set aside to then be given back to the Lord as a recognition of a number of different things, Um, a recognition that um, everything that they have was given to them by God, right? We can till the ground, we can um, plant the seeds, we can water it, but I can't make the crops grow. God does that work, right? Everything that we have been given is from him, and so God demands Um, a a representation of that to remind us. It's not because God needs a reminder. We don't need to remind God that he gave us everything, but we need to be reminded of that. And so we bring a tithe to him um, to remind us of that. We also are being reminded of what God has done for us. God uh, ties in um, different passages, Ties the the tithe to God delivering his people out of slavery in Egypt. God delivers his people out of slavery in Egypt, and, and that's part of why they bring tithes and offerings to the Lord. As, a, as praise and worship of him. So God's, the tithe is required in God's law, but it also predates the giving of the law. Okay, So um, it, some, some people would argue that uh, because the tithe was something that was stipulated in, um, in the commands that Moses gives, that therefore it is not binding on us any longer. It's one of those things that is changed as the covenant changes, in, as Jesus comes and dies and is resurrected, and so we are in him now, that therefore the tithe is no longer binding on us. Uh, and the, there's a couple, a couple different ways to see that, or, and, and I think some issues with that, but one of them is that the, the tithe is something that is instituted before the law is even given. Jacob, when he is um, traveling back to um, uh, away uh, when he's traveling away from his homeland, um, stops and sees this vision of the angels ascending and descending upon the ladder to the um, to heaven. And in, at that instance, in his um, covenanting with God, he institutes a tithe with God. And this is contrasted then with what God says of the uh, the Israelites. Now, in verse six, these sons of Jacob, he says. Are not consumed because of his mercy, and yet they are robbing him. These sons of Jacob are not bringing the tithe in; they're not keeping the covenant that Jacob had established. So, one problem with saying that, well, we don't no longer need to tithe because it was in the in the um, in the Old Testament law. One issue with that is that, well, it actually is instituted um, not just with Jacob, but even other times before the law, before the giving of the law. But here's the other issue with that. If the tithe is is something that God's people are to bring to God because we are acknowledging that everything that he has given to us um, comes from him. Everything that we have comes from him. All of our increase comes from him. And if it's also a reminder of what God has done for us, that he has delivered us out of slavery for the Jews, slavery in Egypt and from their sin, and for us, slavery and bondage to sin, if if that's what God is reminding us of, then um, sure, maybe the tithe isn't binding on us anymore, but only because we should be giving so much more than the tithe, because we've been given so much more. So if, if we want to argue that, well, the tithe isn't applicable to us anymore, that's fine, but it should only be because we are giving so much more than, than what God had required because we realize, we understand how much more we have been delivered from. And this is consistent with the, with, um, the teachings in the New Testament. While the New, Te- New Testament does not explicitly command tithing, the practice of cheerfully giving back to the Lord uh, because everything is from him is part of the Christian living that the New Testament authors describe. Let's look for just a moment at um, 2 Corinthians 9. I'll read verses 6 and 7. Uh, 6, 7, and 8. This is what Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Um, and he says to them, I, this, But this I say, He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So again, here you could argue, see Paul's arguing that we ought to be giving, but it's not, there's not a requirement of the tithe. In fact, Paul says don't give out of necessity. Therefore, I could argue that God is not requiring 10% because then I would be giving out of necessity. And again, okay, that's fine. But is your life, uh, is your life characterized by, this, by the kind of giving that Paul does describe? Is, Paul, is your life characterized by the kind of giving he does describe? Do you sow sparingly? Paul here is not specifically or only talking about giving to the church, giving the tithes to the church. He's talking about giving to um, other missions that are going on in, that Paul was connected to. Second um, Corinthians is, is in part a fundraising letter that Paul writes, where he's asking for, uh, for, to, to raise money to take back to other churches that he has established. So do you sow sparingly? Well, then God says you'll reap sparingly. Do you sow bountifully? God says you'll reap bountifully. You will reap what you sow. And so we are to give as we purpose in our hearts. So It's supposed to be something that we consider, that we prayerfully consider, and then choose to do. It's not to be grudgingly or of necessity because God loves a cheerful giver. But the implication is not that, oh, so therefore you don't need to give. The implication is, yes, give and give and give and give. This is what God calls us to. Now, there's more to this. Again, if tithing is an offering of the first fruits of your increase, then we need to understand, ultimately, tithing is not something that you choose to do or not. Okay, tithing, the principle of tithing that is established in, in God's word is not something that you choose to do or choose not to do. In other words, you are tithing. The question is, to whom are you tithing? You, you always take the first fruits of what you've received and you do something with it. Does everybody here use 10% of their income? So if you're using 10% of your income, then you are tithing. And the question is, to whom are you tithing? Are you tithing to um, your mortgage? Are you tithing to your credit card debt? Are you tithing to vacations? What what are you tithing to? Or are you tithing to the Lord? So it's it's not a question of whether you're tithing. It's a question of who are you tithing to? And the answer to that question, the question is, to whom do you tithe? And the answer to that question identifies who your God is. If, if you are um, not tithing because you've gotten yourself into a lot of debt, then you're saying that that's more important than giving to the Lord. That your debt and getting out of debt is more important than giving to the Lord. It's identifying that as an idol. If you're not tithing because you really want to do this particular uh, vacation, and if I give 10%, I'm not going to be able to do that, then that's identifying what your idol is. You are tithing, but whom are you tithing to? The, The tithe is owed to God as God, and so not bringing it to him is robbing him. And there's lots of questions that um, we're not going to go into them in detail here about what is involved in the tithe. And um, there's questions about are you tithing on net or gross? And there's questions about um, uh, other ways to tithe. You look at the Old Testament, there's actually more than one tithe that is mentioned. And there's different uses for the tithe. Uh, But in general, whom are you tithing to? I think that's the first question that we need to answer. The tithe is owed to God and withholding it, Because it is owed to God means we're robbing Him, and it means that we are cursed. Verse nine says that if we withhold what is owed to God, then we are cursed. And this is really important to consider, especially when you are uh, when you're in uh, a stage of life or a situation where you feel like there's more month left than you have money. Right? Where where I'm not I'm not going to see. I don't see how this is going to work out at the end of the month. The question is, what does God require? God calls on us to walk by faith, to trust him, and as we'll see in just a moment, when we do that, he fills us more than we can handle. If you're looking at your account and you're saying, there's more month left than I have money, your first response actually should be, well, I better tithe. Because I clearly need God to provide for me. So I need the reminder that he has provided everything for me already. And he's going to provide for me as we go forward. Before the temple had been rebuilt... Um, the Lord sent the prophet Haggai to rebuke the people for neglecting to rebuild the temple as they were concerning themselves with building their own houses. You can read about this at the beginning of of Haggai. So just flip a few pages back from Malachi. You can see that in Haggai chapter 1. The Jews had returned from exile in Babylon and they had begun to build their own houses and establish themselves and the, the work of building the temple had stopped for a time. And God sends the prophet Haggai to them to rebuke them because they are setting themselves up and not turning to set up the place of worship for the Lord. What's really fascinating about this is um, what God says will come upon them because of it. Haggai chapter 1 This is what God says. Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. They're working really hard. They're sowing a lot. Um, they're, They're bringing in things to eat and things to drink. They're bringing in their wages, but it's not enough. They're not satisfied. Their wages come in. It's like they're putting it into a bag with holes and it's just falling out as they walk. And so here's God's response to them. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the holy mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands." When we withhold from God, when we don't turn, return to him in worship, when we don't return to him and bring our tithes and offerings, when we aren't cheerful givers before the Lord, God says that he brings curses upon a people. Just as a side note, this, I think, puts a whole new perspective on any sort of discussion about climate change. Right? If there, is, if there are things where we see droughts and more earthquakes and, and other natural things going on in the world which is debatable, but if that's true, let's just, let's just say that it's true. Let's say that the world is on track to, to end by 2030 because of climate change. Well, the Bible, if that's true, the Bible actually has an answer for that. And the answer is not to go buy a green car. The answer is to return to the Lord in repentance and bring him what is owed. So it's, it's fascinating, I think, to see in Haggai chapter 1, which again, is poss- Haggai is possibly a contemporary of Malachi. It's fascinating to see that God says that the heavens are closed up and the earth does not yield crops because of the way that the people were refusing to worship the Lord. And then in Malachi's day, similarly, because the people would not serve God rightly, they were cursed. But God calls them to return to bring in the tithes, promising that when they do so, he will flood them with blessings. Just just consider this. Remember, God has said through Haggai that I'm sealing up the heavens. I'm bringing the drought. I'm the one who's causing it not to rain so that you don't have enough. It's all me. I'm bringing these things against you. And then in Malachi, just look for a moment at chapter 3, verse 10. God says, I will open for you the windows of heaven. It's the same language that is used when God opened the windows of heaven in the flood. And it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And God filled the earth with water. That's the image that you should have in your minds as you read verse 10. I will open the floodgates of heaven. God says that he will flood them with blessings, rebuke the devourer, and make the earth fruitful. Though they are cursed because of their rebellion, God will reverse the curse. He calls them to return to him, to bring in the tithes. And the promise is that he will overwhelm them with his blessings. So this leads then to the center of this passage. Here we see in verse 10 that God invites the people to bring in the tithes and offerings. He says, bring in the tithes and offerings and try me in this. God, God commands the people to test him to see if he will keep his promises And the means by which he calls them to test him is by their obedience. By doing what he has said. The call to test God really ought to strike you. It really ought to surprise you. Because there are other parts of scripture where there are strong warnings against testing God. In uh, Matthew, I think one of the clearest examples of this is Matthew chapter 4. After Jesus has been baptized... Remember, this, the, um, the heavens open up, the Spirit descends upon Jesus, and there's a voice from heaven that declares, this is my beloved Son on whom I am, in whom I am well pleased. And right after that, it says, uh, Matthew tells us that um, the devil then drives, or the Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So the Spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness so that he could be tempted for 40 days. Satan, at the end of that time, comes to Jesus and presents to him a number of different questions or options. And each of those you can see as basically Satan questioning. So God's the father said that you're his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. Is that really true, Jesus? And one of the ways that he does this, let, let's go ahead and look at that. Matthew chapter 4. We'll just look at one of these as it relates to testing God. Jesus, uh, the, the devil takes Jesus... Uh, this is verse 5, takes Jesus up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So the highest point of the temple. And he says to him, if you are the son of God, there's that question, right? If you are the son of God, which God just said, the father just said that you were. But if you are, then throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands, they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So Jesus says to him, it is written again. So Satan is using scripture to try to um, uh, manipulate Jesus into testing God. And Jesus responds with scripture. It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Jesus there is quoting from, you have to do a little bit of bouncing in, in your Old Testament, but Jesus is quoting there from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where Moses says, you shall not test the Lord your God. And that, but that is a reference to an event that happens in Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus 17, the people come, they're traveling through the wilderness, and they come to a place where there's no water. There's no water, and um, you've got, you know, upwards of probably two million people there. There's no water. And they question Moses, it says they complain to the Lord and to Moses, did you bring us out here so that we would die because we don't have any water? Okay, so things are, the, the situation is dire. But there's a, an important difference between there where the people are testing God. Um, and actually at the end of that section, it, um, Moses records that they tested God by asking, is the Lord among us or not? He says they tested God by saying, is the Lord among us or not? There's no water. Is God really here? Which is really a, a, a little mind-boggling when you consider where they are and where they've come from. They've just been in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years, and, and God sends a deliverer to them, Moses. And then that deliverer brings all of these signs and wonders and miracles to completely decimate the uh, people of Egypt, and, and so that the people of Israel are leaving Egypt, and being like money's being thrown at them. They can't leave fast enough. Right, take take the money and go. Please leave. Is what the Egyptians are telling them. So they leave with all of this wealth, um, and then and they come to the Red Sea. And instead of um, and they seem to be trapped because Pharaoh's army is coming behind them. But instead of being wiped out by Pharaoh, God splits the Red Sea and they walk through on dry land. And then God destroys the Egyptian army. And then they're traveling through the wilderness and they're hungry and they're they're wondering, how are we going to get food? Maybe we should go back to Egypt because they had food there. And God sends miracle bread from heaven that they don't have to ask for. And it comes every day and they just have to go out and pick it up. This is the God that they're questioning. Is he among us? Now, their situation is serious, right? They're afraid that they're going to die of thirst. So it's not like they're they're complaining and, and we wouldn't, right? But the situation is such that, what has God done? How can can you question, is God among us? There's a difference between that kind of testing God and what Malachi is recording that God calls us to. The difference between these is that when the Israelites tested God by doubting him, they were trying to manipulate him. They're trying to get things out of God, manipulate him into action. But in Malachi, God calls on His people to test Him by walking by faith in obedience, and that's a huge difference. It's one thing to to um, to think that I can test God and get something out of God, like He's some sort of a vending machine, right? I, I punch in the right numbers. I, I just do things right, or I'm like the priest, right? I'll, I'll bring a sacrifice to appease God, but I, man, I, I really need, um, I need to keep this much back. I need to keep the best for myself, so I'm only going to bring the, the wounded or the, the sick and the lame sacrifices. You're trying to manipulate God to, to do things to get Him to give you what you want. As opposed to what God is calling us to in Malachi 3, where He says, Test me in this bring all the tithes, stop robbing me, do what I've commanded. And just, just watch. I'm going to flood you like I flooded the earth with water. I'm going to flood you with blessings. But, but not because I'm paying you back, not because it's something you deserve, but because I delight in giving to my people. But he calls us to return to him, to bring those tithes in, to walk faithfully in obedience. Um, God says that in, when we give to God in obedience, that he will bless us beyond what we can handle. This calls to mind also Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. At the end of the Psalm, it says my cup, he sets before me a table in the presence of my enemies, right? I'm surrounded by enemies. Uh, It's a really dire situation. And yet God is setting a feast for me there. And there my cup overflows. God gives me so much blessing in the presence of my enemies that I can't contain it all. It's spilling all over the place. It's great, just just coming to me. That's a great verse to remember when your kids are spilling their milk all over the table, right? Our cups are overflowing. The goodness of God, right? His cup overflows. Or in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus promises that um, give and it will be given back to you, pressed down, shaken and pressed down and overflowing. This is God's economy. When we give as God requires, then he gives back to us. So then we can give a little bit more and he gives back to us. And then we give more and he gives back to us because he delights in those who are cheerful givers. God is a good father who delights in outgiving his children. And so so this is not a prosperity gospel, right? Tithe to the church and you're gonna get your dream car. No, no, obey God and watch what God does with that. That's That's what God is saying. Obey me and just watch. Watch what I do with that. He's a good father, delights in outgiving his children. And it's, of course, it's all in his own timing, and his own ways, and sometimes we don't see how he's going to pour out those blessings. Sometimes it's not right away, but that's why we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, doing what God says, obeying him, trusting in his promises. This is the pattern of God's economy. He gives and we give back. He gives more so we can give back more. And there's a really important application of all of this. And, and the um, tithing is sort of, I think, the first step. Okay? It's, the, it's the main thing that, that Malachi is talking about here. And so we, we ought to take that seriously. Okay? Should you be tithing? Yes. Why? Because God tells you to. God shows you in his word. Because you're going to be tithing somewhere. And so you should tithe to the one that you worship. Let me rephrase that. You are tithing to the one that you worship. But, but there's a principle here that goes far beyond money. God tells you to test him in your obedience. You can think about, with, with, again, with young kids. Um, sometimes we, we give our children a command or an instruction because we know there's wonderful things that will come if they do this. And, and what are we wanting them to do? When I say, you know, please go clean your room, and, and I know that if, if they go clean the room, we're going to go throw a party, right? We're going to go to Wendy's and get Frosties, okay? So what I want them to do, I want them to test me, right? Go clean your room. If you clean your room, we're going to go get Frosties. What do I want them to do? I want them to test me, right? I want them to do it to see if I keep my word, to see if I deliver on what I've promised. That's what God is like, but he's like that with all of his commands. Think of um, in Psalm 1. Blesses the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, but instead he his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's rooted, planted like a tree next to the next to the streams of water, and he's bringing forth fruit. He's flourishing. He's rooted. He's grounded. He's established. He's steady. His life is secure. Why? Because he delights in God's law. Because he's obeying, walking in obedience to God. He's walking in God's ways. There's lots of instructions in Scripture. Um, that, that are actually paired with bl- the blessings that come from following them. Okay, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. This is what Paul says. And Paul, Paul goes on and says that the reason that you should obey your parents is because this is the first commandment. Let me just make sure. I have all the kids' attention, right? right? Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Why? Because God says that the, God gives a commandment, and it's a commandment with a promise. Honor your father and mother, the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. That it may be well with you, not just that things are going to go okay. It may be well with you. Things are going to go great, really well. When, when you honor your father and mother, when you obey your parents, that's God's promise. And so, kids, your job this week is to test God. Your job this week is to test God and see if if God is faithful. Because he is. He calls on you to go and walk in obedience to him. And he's going to pour out blessings upon you. It might not be this week. It might, it might come in time. But continue to walk in faith, trusting God. Right, there are other um, commands very similar to this. And, and it tends to come in, when, with regards to families. Paul says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, and Paul brings a very good point about it. He says that if you're loving your wife, you're loving your own body. And who doesn't love his own body? Right? Do we take care of our own bodies? Do we care what happens to our own bodies? If, if my hand is cold, do I put a glove on it? Right? If, I'm, if, I'm, if something is hurting, do I address it in my own body? Well, then husbands, um, duh, take care of your wives. In the same way that Christ died for the church. Because who doesn't care for his own body? And, and, and what's fascinating about that is there's the blessing with that. When you love your wife as Christ loved the church, God says you're caring for your body. Things are going actually better, right? The pain is going away. My hand is getting warm. When you love your wife as Christ loved the church, God pours out blessings upon it. Why? Because he delights to give to those that are giving in the way that he has commanded. God loves a cheerful giver. Wives, you're instructed to submit to your husbands, to give them honor and respect, and what's fascinating about it is in First Peter, when he says, "Submit to your own husbands," um, the, the, um, the blessing that comes along with that is that you win your husband. Yeah, but I've tried that. It doesn't work. Well, God says, "Test me. Test me. Keep testing me, trusting in my promises, walking by faith. Wives are to submit to their own husbands. Why? So that you can have the right kind of influence in your home and run your home in such a way that your husband listens to you. You're not going to get that by arguing with him. You're going to get that by submitting to him. Why? Because that's the way God has designed the world. But but again, that goes right along with husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church because you want to love your own body. You want things to go well in your home. You want your home to be sweet, full of grace and truth and mercy and justice and faithfulness and joy then love your wives as Christ loved the church. Why? Because that's the way God's made the world. And when you walk in obedience to him, he pours out blessings. And all of this just comes from this one little verse in Malachi. Try me in this. Obey me and try me in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that you will not be able to receive it. My blessings are going to crush you. God desires you to test his promises by walking faithfully with him in all things. Walk by faith. And and we know, we, we know the verse, right? We walk by faith, not by sight. And a lot of times, obeying God doesn't look like things are gonna go right. But God says, walk by faith. Obey me and see if I don't pour out blessings upon you. And if, that, if, that doesn't, if that's not appealing to you, or doesn't convince you, then consider the greatest example of this. Jesus obeyed the Father all the way to the cross. Did Jesus doubt that it was going to go well? He was, he, in his flesh, he was terrified. Because he knew not only was he going to be tortured and hung on a cross, he knew the wrath of God was coming upon him. That's why he sweat blood in the garden. And yet he walked by faith, obeying God, trusting that God was going to bless him. And so then he dies for your sins so that you can do the same. He dies for your sins so that as you face temptation, you can say, no, I am in Christ. I follow Jesus. I've been saved by Christ I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to walk by faith in obedience to God and trusting that God will grant me the desires of my heart. Not because I deserve them, but because He's a good Father. So, what has God called you to? What does He require of you today? What does He require of you this week? You may be tempted to think that you might be able to get away with giving God less than he demands. You might think that you would be able to get away with um, not obeying him in part because you don't like God very much. His commands are capricious. He's self-centered. You need to hear that withholding from God what he has required of you only brings a curse. It never ends well. On the other hand, faithful obedience to God, walking in his ways, brings abundant blessings. In Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us that we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices. Don't present yourself to God like the priests were presenting the lame and the sick sacrifices. Withholding from God. Present yourself as a living sacrifice. Meaning present your whole self, everything you have, to God. Walking in obedience by faith. Bring yourself like that sacrifice. Bring in the tithes and offerings to test the Father who can and who will do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think. Just try. Try to outgive God. He tells you to. Test him in this. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have required much of us, and yet at the same time, you have required so little. You ask us to bring ourselves to you, and you give us the means to do that. Give us repentant hearts, Father, that we would return to you, that you would give us strength over our sin and temptations, that we would walk by faith and obedience to your commands, not because we want to earn something before you, or because we want to manipulate you, but because we know that you have saved us. We know that Jesus is our Lord. Teach us these things. Teach us to be a people that test you by obedience. And then, Father, we do ask that you would be true to your promises, that you would pour out blessings upon us so that we would not be able to handle it. In Jesus' name, amen.